Uh, we looked at uh, maybe what the motives were of his heart and how they probably reflected the motives of our own heart and how some of maybe his uh, self-righteousness and his self-assurance would probably uh, reflect our own struggles with feeling like uh, we're good enough or we can earn it. And so we, we looked mostly last week, almost exclusively last week, at the question and what was behind it. This week, we're going to look at the answer. We're going to go back to the same text in verses 18 through 30 of Luke's uh, gospel, chapter 18, and we're going to see how Jesus responds to this, uh, to this question. And I think we could put this under the heading of uh, the answers we need are not always the answers we want. Have you ever uh, had somebody give you an answer to a question and it really wasn't what you were looking to hear? Uh, you know, I, I like to hear, you know, sweetie, how do I look? You look really great. You know, you look really, you look really buff. You're in great shape. Sometimes, though, what I need to hear is you probably ought to get to the gym and put the M&Ms away for a little while. It's not necessarily what I was looking for, but it probably, more importantly, is what I need to hear. If you know the story of the emperor's new clothes, it's a children's story that is told. We probably all heard it when we were little. What the emperor needed was somebody strong enough and wise enough and brave enough to say, these two guys are charlatans. They're, they're, they're making you look like a fool. They're making the rest of us look like a fool. Do you understand you don't have any clothes on right now? That's what the emperor needed. wasn't necessarily what he wanted to hear. The ruler comes to Jesus with a question that probably a lot of us have asked from time to time. What do I need to do to be saved? That's a good question. That's a fair question. That's an honest question. I would say it's the most important question any of us could ever ask. But are we prepared to hear the answer? Are we prepared to hear the truth, the honest reply that Jesus shares in what we must do to inherit eternal life? With that in mind, let's go back to Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18 through chapter, excuse me, through verse 30. Hear the word of God. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we come together this morning uh, to uh, what we call a church service, a worship service. Father, some of us come because we feel it is our uh, responsibility, it's our, it's our duty, it's that which you require. Uh, that's what a good person does. 
Father, some of us are here because uh, maybe a friend invited us, or perhaps we have uh, some questions and we've become uneasy in, in our understanding of our own lives or the world around us, and we may be coming searching for answers. Father, some of us may be here hoping that uh, someone uh, sitting next to us gets the right answer. Uh, we're not here for us, we're, we're here for them. Father, some of us come perhaps fearful, uh, maybe a bit broken. We look at our lives and we, we sense that there should be something more. Or we're disappointed with our, our conduct or our thoughts and we are uh, questioning our own character. Father, I, I know just a handful of the people in this room. I, I don't know everyone in this room like you do. I couldn't even begin to understand the, the thoughts and the and the fears and the anxieties and the joys of, of this many people. Uh, but Lord, you know each one of us intimately. Uh, you know those things about which we rejoice, and you know those things that make us sorrowful. You know the beginning from the end. You know the things that everyone else knows, and you know the things that are hidden from sight. And Father, in all of that, you love us. You sent your Son to redeem lost sinners to heal our brokenness, and to restore us to what life could truly be. And so, Father, as we come to look at this passage and the answer that Jesus gave this young man about life, uh, it's an answer that is for all of us. This is not an exercise of looking back into an, an historical event and seeing an interesting conversation, Lord. It is an application for every one of us in this room. So, Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to what you want us to learn and to understand and to apply to our lives this morning. Father, I can't do, uh, do justice to this passage. I, I can only give man's understanding. Father, if you don't enlighten us with your spirit, then we will leave still in darkness. But you promise that the Lord Jesus is the light of the world and that he reveals the innermost thoughts of our hearts and that, that your word will not return empty to you. It will do the work that you set it to do. So, Father, forgive me for my sins. Please do not let me be an obstacle. But, Lord, I pray that, that your word would speak its truth into every heart and mind that's gathered together this morning here. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Excuse me for bringing my water up here with me, but I got a little bit of a cold from standing out in the rain on Thursday night. We are going to... Uh, we're going to look at the answers that Jesus gives this morning. Last week, we looked at the questions, and this morning, uh, we want to observe how Jesus reacts and responds to this man, because Jesus' reaction and response to him is the reaction and response to us this morning. We may not come from the same uh, position that this man came. We, we certainly live in a different generation, uh, so there, there, there are wide differences, but this is an answer that Jesus shares with all of mankind, and so it's applicable for us this morning. So the young man comes and says, what must I do? And Jesus gives him an answer. He says, if you want to know what you must do, here's what you must do. The first thing you need to do is you need to go to the right source to find the right answer. If you look at verses 19 and 20, after the young man asked the question, what must I do? Jesus says, why do you call me good? If you remember, he came to him and he said, good teacher, what must I do? He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Now, 
one of the things that Jesus is addressing here is the title that this man gives him. And we mentioned it last week that there is no writing in Jewish antiquity where in Jesus' generation, the word that this young man uses for good and rabbi are put together. Because the word this man uses for good is a word that is assigned only to God's perfect and holy character. So what this young man is saying is, I have an inkling that you're more than just a teacher. You're more than just a prophet. You're, you're more than just a, a good role model for all of us to follow. I actually am sensing the, the divine presence in you. Now, whether he was being authentic or not, commentators debate back and forth. But there can be no debate that the actual word assigns Jesus a title that is fit for no normal and ordinary human being. And Jesus calls him out on the question, why do you call me a word that is assigned only to God? God alone is perfect in all things. God alone is good. God alone is without moral fall. God alone is the only one who is trustworthy and true. God alone is the only one who is without malice. You need to go to the right source. To go to another person and just simply ask their opinion of eternal life only gives you one more opinion about eternal life. If there is a God, if he is gracious and good as scripture defines him to be, then he alone is the one in whom you can trust to get the answer to the question. Years ago in the late 70s and early, uh, through the, actually through the whole decade of the 1980s, uh, Cindy and I lived on Lookout Mountain just outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, there's a couple of tourist places on Lookout Mountain. If you've driven through that area, uh, you've seen signs. They say Sea Ruby Falls or Sea Rock City. Anybody ever seen those signs as you go through Tennessee? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. So we had a lot of tourist traffic on Lookout Mountain. And it was not unusual for you to be standing next to the park where, there, you know, where the ball fields were, the, maybe the, the swing sets with the kids. It would not be unusual for you to be at the grocery store or the gas station and have someone drive up with a Florida license plate or an Ohio license plate, or even a Missouri license plate, and you're standing on Lookout Mountain, and the question they ask is, excuse me, could you tell me how to get to Lookout Mountain? <laughs> I think they were looking for some kind of, you know, specific place. And so in my goodness, and in my graciousness, and in my compassion, standing on Lookout Mountain, I would say, yeah, now, what you need to do is you need to go up that stop sign and turn right. And then you need to go about 12 miles... And you'll see a house with like a brown mailbox, and you turn left, and I would just give them the runaround. And this became a great hobby for the people of Lookout Mountain to torture these tourists. You needed to make sure that when you were asking whether you were on Lookout Mountain, you didn't ask the wrong person. I'm confessing my sin this morning. I was the wrong person. You need to make sure if you're going to ask the question of what must I do to inherit eternal life, that you ask the right person. That you go to the one who is defined not just by wisdom, and not just by power, and not just by eternity, but one who is defined as completely good, without flaw, without moral defect, without any malice towards you, one in whom you can trust you'll get a straight answer. You'll get an honest reply. And so Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. But notice that there. Does not uh, the conversation doesn't stop there? 
Jesus goes on to answer the man's question. Now, this is, this is an indirect truth, but you need to get it. It is implicit, not explicit. By Jesus answering the question, Jesus is saying, you've come to the right place. You've come to the right source. What you have detected in me is exactly right. Jesus is saying to that man, I am God in the flesh. And if you're here this morning and you, and you don't know what it means to, uh, to be a follower of Jesus, if you don't know uh, what the Bible teaches, this might all be new to you. You might have maybe had a couple of college classes on religion, or maybe you grew up in a home where you talked a little bit about God, but it wasn't something that was you know, kind of right in front of you all the time. You need to understand that Jesus never claims to be just human. Jesus was fully human. He was 100% flesh and bones. He was not a ghost that appeared to be human. He was a human man, but he was also completely divine. The claim that Jesus made was that he was and is and continues to be the eternal son of God. And it is with that that we must wrestle. It is with that claim of truth, ultimate truth and ultimate authority that everyone who comes asking this question must understand the context in which Jesus puts the conversation. Jesus says, I alone have the authority to answer your question, but I alone have the goodness that you need in order to get to the truth. So we need to go to the right source. Jesus also says what we need to do for eternal life is we need to listen in order to live. Look at verse 22. Verse 21, the man says, after Jesus lists the commandments, he goes, well, I've done all that stuff. I'm in good shape. And we mentioned last week that clearly he, he looked at his life pretty, pretty superficially. To suggest that you've kept all the law perfectly, that you've never committed any sins whatsoever, would be, uh, would be somewhat shallow at best. And so Jesus listens to his answer. He says, okay, the, the young man says, I've, I've done all this. I'm in good shape, right? But Jesus says, and one thing you lack, just one, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Three observations in this area of listen in order to live. The first is this, that we need to allow God to have the final word. What does Jesus say? He says, one thing you lack. Now that's either true or it's not true. It's either right or it's wrong. But as Jesus looks into this man's heart and he sees his desire to be right with God and he sees the human effort which he's clearly put forth, even to, to begin to, to try to defend that statement, you've done it all right, means that you've at least been working pretty hard at it. And Jesus sees all that for what it is, but he says there's still something missing. The question is, will we let God have the last word? Will we allow him to say, you know what, Tom Ricks, there's one thing you lack. Put your name in that blank. You know, so-and-so, there, there's one thing you're not getting yet. You're still, you're still not right there, but since you asked, let me tell you the truth. There's one area that you need to understand. Do we allow God to have the last word? Or is it, is it more of the attitude like I have quite often when I'm in a conversation with someone, maybe it's my wife Cindy, maybe it's a, uh, somebody at, at the office, maybe it's somebody in the church or just a friend, while they're telling me what they think, I'm what? I'm getting ready to give my response. I'm not interested in them having the last word. I want to make sure I have the last word. And friends, if you come to God demanding the last word, he'll give it to you, but you won't be in a relationship with him. You won't hear the truth for what it is. And when Jesus says, now in a bit of a confrontation, one thing you lack, this man's now forced to decide whether or not he's going to listen and allow God to have the last word. 
Because what Jesus says to him is it's time for you to abandon your short-sighted self-confidence. It's time for you to remove all the obstacles that stand between you and eternal life. It's time for you to develop an eternal perspective on things. This sentence of Jesus is filled with imperatives. It's filled with instructions. It's filled with commands. Here's what you must do. What must you do? You must sell. You must distribute in order that you might have. And then you must come and you must follow me. Jesus says to this young man, you've been looking at this all wrong. You've been looking at accumulation as the source of your comfort, as the source of your security, as the source of your good standing with God. As we'll see in a few moments, people are shocked when Jesus says that the rich have a hard time entering the kingdom of heaven because in his day and age, it was assumed that if you were blessed with riches, you were a very spiritual person. You must have been in good standing with God, and that's why he heaped wealth upon you. And Jesus says, you're going to need to have a radical change of thinking. Are you willing to listen to that message? Are you willing to listen to my commands? Because if you are, then you can have eternal life. It might not be the answer you want, but it's the answer you need. And now he's faced with a choice, just as we are faced with a choice. When Jesus says to us, you need to abandon your own short-sighted self-confidence. It might not be money. It might be prestige. Might be how many letters you have after your name, how much education you have. Might be the family to which you were born. It could be a lot of different things. But Jesus says none of that gains you entrance into the kingdom of God. And you need to understand what you lack in order to get what you would like to gain. And the only way you do that is by rejecting the ability to save yourself and putting your trust wholly and completely in me. Because if if your trust is wholly and completely in me, then there's only one choice left. After you've given it all away, so to speak, after you've abandoned everything, there's only one thing left to do. Come and follow. Come Come sit at the very feet of goodness and human flesh and allow me to be your master. Allow me, the gracious one, to be your Lord. Have faith in God alone. Stop trusting in all these things that are propping up your life in such a superficial manner and put your trust solely and completely in me. In other words, you need to listen if you're going to learn. But the third thing that Jesus knew this man needed and that we need this morning is we need to trust in the power of God. So this man gets very sad. He gets very discouraged after he hears this message of Jesus. So Jesus says in, in verses, uh, and then the, excuse me, and then the crowd gets a little bit surprised, uh, and they say, you know, who, who can possibly be saved? Jesus says how difficult it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then the question comes, who can be saved? Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, my, my focus needs to be redirected. I need to, I need to abandon my thought that I can save myself. But when I do that, I'm left adrift at sea unless there's someplace else where I can focus, unless there's some other power that can give me life. If I'm going to refocus my faith and put it in God alone, 
then I have to understand that there's one who can, who can save me. There's one who could actually get the camel through the eye of the needle, so to speak. I chuckle at, at uh, all the things that have been written. There have been volumes written on this phrase. What did Jesus mean? Uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to go into heaven. You know, and, and this is why you go to seminary and, and, you, and you study Greek and you try to figure all this out. What's kind of behind that? Jesus is just telling a joke. Jesus is just saying, you know, it's like me saying it would be easier for, you know, for me to do this than it would be for me to sprout wings and fly to the moon. Nobody's sitting around going, gee, I wonder if Tom's going to sprout wings and fly to the moon. Jesus is saying, it's impossible for you to save yourself. It's impossible for you who are so distracted by the idea, the notion whether it's wealth or fame or prestige, that that is what puts you in good standing. It's impossible for you to change course. It's impossible for you to abandon that and trust in something else. If you're going to abandon that, it's going to be because someone stronger, someone more powerful who actually has the ability to defeat sin and, to de and death and grant life actually will use that power for you. We need to learn to trust in the power of God if we're going to have eternal life. Uh, my old lawnmower died a few weeks ago. And wouldn't you know it, we had nice warm weather in October and I still need to cut the grass, right? So, uh, so I go up to the store and I look for lawnmowers and they're way too expensive. And then I go on Craigslist and I start shopping around and, uh, and I, found a, I found a John Deere, a used John Deere tractor at an incredible bargain price. It was way out in, uh, uh, in Hillsboro, Missouri, the guy who was selling it. And so I called him on the phone, and, and we talked, and we agreed upon a price, and I uh, borrowed my buddy Lance's pickup truck, and my youngest son, Jordan, was in town for a couple days. He goes to University of Alabama, and he was in town to watch them play Mizzou, and I won't go into all that because I know some of y'all are still depressed. But um, we drive out to Hillsboro, and we, I get on the, the lawnmower, and I drive around, make sure it's okay, it's all good. And then we're kind of looking for a hill where we can back the truck up and just, you know, maybe kind of just lift it up this far to, to get it onto the truck. And we're not really having a whole lot of success. And about the time we're trying to figure it out, this guy's brother-in-law drives up and he gets out of the car. And, and he gets out of the car and like there's this mountain of a man. <laughs> I mean, this guy is seriously buff. And he's been living in the gym and maybe taking stuff he shouldn't be taking. I, I, he could hit a baseball a long way if he had any hand-eye coordination. He's like, hey, what are you guys doing? We're like, we're trying to get this tractor. He goes, oh, I've got some planks. And he starts to look at the lawnmower. And they look, and he goes, oh, we don't need those. And he comes over. He goes, y'all grab the back end. And he lifts this lawnmower up. I mean, he just, it literally is like picking up a child. He goes, all right, you, the three of you have the back end, the light end, and drops it on the, on the truck bed, and off, off we go. We needed somebody powerful enough to get the lawnmower on the truck. You and I need somebody infinitely powerful enough to erase the sin in our lives, to rescue us from death and from hell, and to grant us eternal life. You don't have the wherewithal inside of you. I don't have the wherewithal inside of me to do that. Jesus says you need to trust in the power of God. This idea of man earning eternal life, it's impossible. Don't even bother. But if you want to know what God will do, he will use his power. Because what is impossible with man is possible with God. And the last thing he calls this man to, says you need to go to the right source, you need to listen in order to live, you need to put your trust in the power of God, but you also need to trust in the goodness of God. Look at verses 28 through 30. Peter, who is, who is want to uh, chime in from time to time, Peter hops up and says, see Lord, we've left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, to all of them gathered there, 
including the, the, the ruler who is still standing in the crowd. Truly, in all honesty, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. I think the uh, temptation when you get to these verses is to begin to talk about sacrifice that we should make in order to serve God. Uh, this might be the time in the sermon where you're like, oh, here it comes. The pastor now is going to talk about money. No, I'll get there in a couple minutes, but not right now. Because this isn't about our sacrifice. If you read it that way, you're not getting it. Look at what Jesus says. He says you can trust in the goodness of God. If you would dare to believe in me, if you would be so radically inclined to embrace the notion that it's by faith you are saved, and you would abandon all that this world offers to you as security, as, as comfort, as ease, as a wrong notion that God is blessing you, and you would turn solely to putting your faith in me, you can trust in my goodness. No one who makes that choice will be abandoned. Jesus is not speaking about the, the, the bravery of those who abandon the notion of self-salvation. He is speaking directly to the goodness of God. The answer to the question, what must I do, is given by God. You must come by faith if you are to have an eternal home. And Jesus says, I am the embodiment of God's goodness and God's grace, and you can trust me. If you would put your faith in me, you will not be sorry you did. You will have life more than you could ever imagine. My word is good because I represent the goodness of God. I remember the, uh, the only road race I've ever run in my life. Back in uh, Thanksgiving of 2007, my daughter Katie somehow talked me into uh, running the Thanksgiving, the Turkey Day Trot, uh, but the Kirkwood of Webster Turkey Day Trot, and it's a 5K, which for those of you that don't know road racing, that means it's about 15 miles. And... Um, <laughs> It's a three-mile, like, really light, easy run for people who are serious about running. And I uh, worked hard for about six months to get in shape for this three-mile race. How pathetic is that? Uh, but I got to the place where um, I could run the race. And the whole thing with time, Katie was saying, Dad, just get in shape. We'll do it together. We'll do it together. It'll be so much fun. I'll be home from college, and we'll run together. This will be awesome. So I'm thinking, oh, it'll be so great to run with my daughter and just enjoy a three-mile run. And so I worked hard, and I got in shape. And, uh, and the day of the race comes, and there's, like, I don't know, like 1,500 people or something. It's, it's not like gigantic like Boston Marathon. There's a bunch of people. And so the one race I've been in, I figured out you get kind of towards the back of the pack, and you kind of walk for a little while until you finally get up to running, right? Because all the serious runners are out there in front. So we're, you know, kind of 100 yards into the race. We're still kind of walking, jogging. And finally, the street kind of clears out, and now we're, we're really going. And I'm, and I'm doing my, you know, 9-minute and 48-second pace mile, which seems to me like a sprint. But um, I I'm moving along quite well. And Katie's right next to me. She kind of keeps glancing over at me. And she's not smiling. And Nathan's running with me too, but I'm, real I'm here to do it with Katie. And she's looking at me. And she's like, finally, after about six, 700 yards, she goes, is this your pace? And I'm like, no, it's a little faster than my normal pace, I, I think. And she looks at me and she goes, I can't take this. And she puts on her headphones and she leaves. <laughs> 
Katie, I hope you listen to this sermon, you rotten little kid. Um, I love you, sweetie. I really do. Um, she left me. She abandoned me. Now, this is a road race. Who cares? Nate stayed with me for a long time. Nate stayed with me for about two and a half miles, and then this really cute little girl ran by, and he looked at me like with a pitiful look, and I'm like, go ahead. I can, I can find my way to the finish line. Go ahead. But, you know, we live in a world where people make promises that they break all the time. We live in a world that would cause you to say, you know what? I don't know, Jesus. I'm not sure that I can go down this road because if, if, if you make this promise and there's nothing left, I'm going to be in big trouble. And Jesus says you need to understand the goodness of God. I'm trustworthy. I wouldn't tell you to abandon all of this unless I knew it was meaningless and it was of no good for you and it was of no ultimate importance to you. What is it, Jesus says, if, if man gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? Jesus answers the question, honestly, it might not be what we want to hear this morning, but it's what we need to hear, that salvation is by faith in Christ, and we need to abandon any human devices to gain good standing with God and throw ourselves on the mercy of the one who is powerful enough to save and the one who is good enough to save. Now, the facts are probably 85% of the people in this room already know that. I haven't given you any new information this morning. The vast majority of you claim to be disciples of Jesus. How do we apply this? You say, Tom, I've, I've already done that. I've already put my faith in God. Well, remember the theme of this sermon series is questions that people bring to Jesus because they're the same questions and we need to be prepared to answer them. How are we answering the question today? What do people need to see in us in order to understand the truth of the gospel? Because the world is still asking the questions and yet they seem to be unaware or confused by our answer. When I say are, I mean those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus. So before we quit this morning, I want to remind everyone in this room who calls themselves by the name of Christian that there's an application for us that goes beyond the truth of salvation. And the first is this. Notice that Jesus was engaged with his culture. Notice that when this man comes to him, it was the most normal conversation in the world. This ruler was compelled to find an answer to the question, and I guarantee you this wasn't the first time he asked it. I, I, it doesn't say so in Scripture, but I can promise you that this man had had this conversation dozens of other times with other rabbis, and there was still something in his heart that wasn't quite right. And he was still looking for the truth. But, you know, as Bono was saying, I still haven't quite found what I'm looking for. And I believe in our day, in our generation, people are still asking this question but they are unaware of our answer or they're confused by our answer. They listen to our words, but they don't necessarily put two and two together. And Jesus is engaged with his culture to the extent that when this man was compelled to find an answer, he knew ultimately where he needed to go. When's the last time someone asked me or someone asked you, if you're a disciple, can you tell me what it means to have eternal life? They didn't wait for you to bring up the topic. They didn't, you know, uh, give you uh, the opportunity through, you know, getting to know them over years. They simply had, had looked at your life, and they said, you must have something that I don't. The world's asking the question, but is anybody asking me? Is anybody asking you, what must I do? And if they're not, why is that? Why is it that we don't seem to be folks who would know the answer, and yet we call ourselves 
disciples of Jesus. Jesus was engaged with his culture. He was in the crowds all the time. He lived it in front of people. The second thing I would say that needs to be in our hearts as well is that Jesus' answer was motivated by love of God and lost people. He cared for this young man. This man goes away sad. We don't know if he came back later on. We don't know what his eternal destiny ended up being, but Jesus loved him enough to tell him the truth. I think I'm more motivated by wanting to be light or not wanting to necessarily rock the boat Instead of saying, you know what, if I'm asked the question, I'm, gonna, I'm going to be gracious, I'm going to be kind. Jesus was not rude to this man. He did not brush him off. He was patient with him. And does that mark my life? Am I willing to set aside my reputation? Am I willing to be thought a fool instead of the comfort of a good reputation if it means telling someone the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm not saying you go stand on a street corner and Hold your Bible open and read, although that might not be a bad idea. But what I am saying is that you and I both need to take a good, hard look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what's most important? What are the idols in my life? Is it my reputation? Is it my money? Is it my good standing? What is it that would keep me from being a person to whom people would come to ask the serious questions of life? And the third thing I believe that people need to see in us is not only a group of folks engaged in our culture, motivated by love of God and love for the lost, but also we need to see that Jesus' life matched his message. Jesus could say to the young guy, you need to get rid of all your possessions. He, he, said, he was able to say that because he didn't have any. <laughs> Jesus didn't own anything. Jesus said to a, to a friend uh, who asked him where he was staying one time, he said, well, foxes have dens and, and birds have nests, but, but as for me, the Son of Man, he has no place to lay his own head. There was no confusion between the way Jesus lived and the way Jesus taught. No one could be confused by hypocrisy. He gave up everything. Paul says to the Corinthians, you know Jesus, who was rich beyond riches can be imagined, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you might be rich in grace. Paul says to the Philippian church, have the same attitude of Jesus who, although he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to selfishly, but he gave it up and he took on the form of a human and he became a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' life matched his message. I had a friend say to me this last week, I told you I was going to talk about money. I had a friend say to me last week, you need to be careful as you guys go into this uh, building deal that people don't begin to see you as the pastor who always is asking for money. And this is a really good friend, and I really appreciated what he said because he cared about me. And I, I said thanks, and, and we talked a little more and kind of went on, and I didn't give it a whole lot more thought until I started really studying this passage. And it, I didn't preach a sermon to ask for money. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> That's the furthest thing from my mind. But I believe that what we are attempting to do in establishing a new home and a new platform from which we can proclaim the gospel is the best way to ensure that if Jesus doesn't come back in our lifetime, that after you and I are long gone, there'll still be a group of individuals, disciples of Jesus Christ, 
who are answering this question. What could possibly be more important? Let me be as clear as I can possibly be. I know that the message of the gospel is true. And I believe that Jesus has called us to faithfully abandon everything but that. So that if Jesus is wrong, we lose everything. And we play the ultimate fool. Because only in following Jesus that way will we experience the joy of our salvation. Will we experience the pleasure and the delight of going on an adventure with him that leads to our lives being changed and the world around us being transformed by the gospel? Jesus says, abandon it all, give it up, in order that you can gain everything. Because I'm good, and that's what I give. And he's called Green Tree Community Church to represent him. And that he's called us to that individually, and he's called us to that as a body. Whether you give a dime or $100,000 is not the point. Will we abandon all in order to make his word and his truth known through our lives, collectively given, so that others can have the answer to the question, what must I do to have eternal life? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, in human terms, I think about the, the risk you took in telling folks the answers that they needed to hear and not necessarily what they wanted to hear. I think about the, the, maybe the afternoon, I don't know what time of day it was when you were standing with this young man. There are a lot of other people standing around listening. And when you said no one is good except God alone, there were probably a lot of religious people that were shaking their heads saying that's exactly right. But then when you went on to answer the question, you created more enemies for yourself. And your reputation with them was shot. And ultimately, you wouldn't let this young man rest his life on a lie without being confronted with the truth. And you created sadness in his life with your message. You didn't offend him or anger him or, or in any way belittle him. You just made him sad with the truth because he discovered that he had an idol in his life that was greater than God that he would not let go. Lord Jesus, you tell us that same truth this morning. You ask us to, to come and to follow. You say, that's the way. It's through faith. It's not by your, what you call good deeds. It's not by your human effort. That's an impossibility. This is only possible because God is strong enough and God is good enough to redeem you. So Lord, whether we're, whether we're in a school or whether in a building or whether in a street corner or an office or a, or a hallway in our classroom during the week, wherever we find ourselves, whatever circumstances, may we embrace the answer to the question. What we do is we have faith. And Father, I pray for every disciple in this room this morning because we struggle with this. This is hard. It's hard for us to abandon our, our own imaginations, our own uh, systems, our, our, our own ideas, they still linger in our hearts and our souls. Father, help us to throw it all away. Help us to just trust. Just believe that you're good enough and you're powerful enough. And then, Father, give us that heart that we would take that message into the world. 
for Jesus' sake. And through his name, I pray. Amen.